hello, and welcome to Wands and Fronds, the weekly podcast where we cover magic, herbalism, and more. I'm Nick. And I'm Shannon. And this week, I am taking you into the folklore of Southern England to look at pixies, which are not fairies. And we're going to be looking at that a little bit closer. Yeah, very, very important distinction. Very important distinction. That is correct. That is the only distinction that we'll be looking at today. Uh, And we will be diving into Midsummer Night's Dream once again to discuss the fascinating history of Oberon. So love it. The the king of the fairies, pixies, you're seeing a theme. Shannon, what do you have for us from the herbalism world today? Well, I'm going to cover chamomile, which is tiny and cute and goes perfectly with a theme of little people. So little tiny guys, little tiny flowers. Tinies. It's great. I I love chamomile and we'll we'll talk about it a little bit, but before we get started, like my favorite weird tidbit I found out is that medieval people like bred chamomile to have two flowers on it, like a double-headed chamomile <laughs> to try and like get more medicine out of the plant. But I was like, all I want is two-headed chamomile. Like, yeah. Yes, yes, please. With that in mind, I guess we can jump in to the episode. J- jump into the episode. Okay, so it's Pixie Week. Um, and Everybody, I think we should all just like close our eyes and think about Zoe Deschanel's bangs and live out our manic pixie dream girl fantasies. Okay, so we're we're imagining it. Yes, I'm there. And okay, so since we have talked about elves and fairies on this show, I felt it was only appropriate to just keep it going and do some coverage on pixies. And my very specific question that I had going into this that I wanted to zero in on was what is the difference between pixies and fairies anyway? Um, And that's, that's what I have brought to the table for you guys today. So I think up front, we can do some really fun cross topic exploration here because I think kind of like a very clear example of what the difference between fairies and pixies are can be found where else but the Midsummer Night's Dream, where we find, (gasps) yes, uh, Titania and her servants, like Mustard Seed and the rest of the gang, are like willing to help the humans and show compassion to at least the humans who like give them love and devotion, whereas Oberon and his servant, the mischievous queer icon Puck, view humanity as playthings and revel in tricking and confusing them. Which brings me to some fun linguistics nonsense to get out of the way before I really dive into like the history of pixies, you guys. So the but name- I, I have to say, I am 100% always here for some linguistics nonsense. Thank you, Shannon. Uh, so am I, which is why I'm like leading with it. So uh, the name Puck, was specifically chosen from another Old English word that was derivative uh, from the same word as pixie, um, like pugsy, pugsy, pucky, puck. uh, And the word pesky also shares a a common base word with pixie and pugsy. And I think the most surprising sort of linguistic legacy of pixies is that pixie-led became slang for confused or lost because the pixies would confuse or get people lost on roads that they already knew, um, which evolved into just like anything messy or confusing in general, which evolved 
over time to the word pixelated, which meant the same thing, which was then quanti- the word they used for when something was broken up into pixels and like blurred out became pixelated, which created the quantity of a single pixel, which then had to be quantified into megapixels. You see where I'm going? Oh my God. Uh, my entire fucking brain is blown. I, so, I had no idea. So pixies, pixels, maybe we should be calling them pixies instead of pixels. And sort of one last side note for this rabbit hole of how pixies became pucks, pesks, and pixels is that I find it very funny and on the nose that the pixies in the Fairly Odd Parents, their magic looked like pixels because they're all like corporate and uh, whatever. Oh my uh, God. I just, that makes everything electronic so much more whimsical. Right. I mean, you know, it's like Bluetooth. Uh, Bluetooth was a guy. Um, yeah. Nick's just bringing us all of the really cool, like magic connections to modern technology. And I, I love that journey for us. You know, it's like, I, I, th- I always think it's fun when I'm like, oh, it, They sound the same because they're based on the same word. So moving on, pixie lore has been around in the UK since pre-Christian times. And frankly, how long is uh, hard to pin down because people didn't write any of this shit down until way later, uh, which makes it kind of hard to trace. But we do see instances of pixies in Arthurian legends, which are very old and based on much older stories. That they, you know, like the Arthurian legends, I mean, if we really want to look at it, we're individual legends of local heroes that all got attributed to the same guy uh, to make like one big story. And, yeah, you know, like the Bible and yeah. lots of other stories. But yeah, I, yeah, do, yeah. I liked your cliff notes, like, you know, the Arthurian legends, which are very old. I feel like that's the cliff notes of it. It's very old. It's very old. Uh, And like the fact that they were written around the 11th or 12th century doesn't really tell us the whole story of how old the stories are, because that was the first time they were written down. And who knows what like what the original story is based on and how old that even is, except in a few like very specific Arthurian legends where they're like, no, this is pretty much the exact legend of this real guy who lived at this time. And that's cool when they can do that. But when they do that, they're like from the second or third century. So maybe that old. It's like really old and also based on even older stuff. Right. So pixies are there, though. Pixies are there. uh, And they're sort of introduced as and there were pixies guarding the treasure and it's like and you're just supposed to know what pixies are as the as the 11th century audience of this tale you know they're like pixies yeah you know you guys you guys all know we don't have to talk about it yeah it's like there's clouds in the sky and pixies these are all things that we understand right right it's like i say cloud you see a cloud i say pixie you know what the fuck i'm talking about we don't need to put it in this story. Very frustrating for me as a guy who's like digging through this shit uh, on the internet, trying to make a podcast out of it. But uh, nonetheless, that's what we have. That's what we're looking at. Um, so, but we do have some little flavor of the pixie aesthetic, specifically that they're very small. So, whereas the Fae and the Elves uh, of Celtic and Scandinavian 
folklore can take different sizes going up to and even bigger than just regular people, pixies are always small. Um, and, you know, I, I, I do have to like cross-reference here. Oberon was originally very small. And, you know, I do, I feel like I make more of a case for Oberon being a pixie uh, in his thing. So we'll save it. We will save it for now. But Let's pop, uh, popping a pin in that. We're just, just putting a little pin there. Uh, but they're very small, never bigger than a, a small child, you know, not even a regular child, a small child, uh, but definitely kind of able to shape shift in that range. So they could shape shift up to being the size of a small child, but no bigger. Um, so, you know, very cool. Uh, and in their natural form, they were said to have like bluish and sometimes greenish skin and like insect style wings. Um, so kind of getting that fairy vibe of like the, you know, with the butterfly wings, but, but pixies are kind of like janky, you know, like they're not like beautiful, like fairies are a lot of times described, especially later on, like the original fairies were kind of fucking scary. Like they're scary and from another dimension. Yeah. It's like OG fairies are fucking monsters in the stories. Right. But like, like fairy tale fairies, you know, like fucking Tinkerbell, which we'll talk about a little later on because I have some juicy, juicy goss on Tinkerbell as well. Yeah. So they, they're, they're like not like butterfly wings. They're kind of more like dragonfly wings or like mayfly wings. You know, they're like insecty wings, kind of spooky. They have green skin, sometimes pointy ears, sometimes like what they call almond shaped eyes. But they actually say that that was like a Victorian add on to the original stories to make them seem quote unquote oriental. Which, oh, God. That's. Yeah. I. Yikes. Um, Yikes. Yeah. Victorians uh, miss me with that. But uh, but but blue and green skin, very common and attributable to like the earlier legends. So so we're going to go with blue or green skin. We're going to go with insect wings. We're going to go with they're very tiny. Did I mention that they're very tiny? They're very tiny. Um, so they do pranks. They're very tricky. And uh, unlike the fairies, like they don't really do good deeds. Some of them do good deeds but you would mainly want to avoid pixies because they loved playing like pranks and um, it's never lethal pranks, you know, like the Fae do weird shit. They do changelings. Uh, they trap you in the fairy world and then you come back like 500 years later. And they'll, they'll straight up kill people. They'll kill people. Pixies don't kill people. Okay. Uh, never super life altering stuff. Uh, just, you know, getting lost, getting confused, falling off your horse. Uh, actually, funnily enough, speaking of horses, uh, tangling up the horse's hair was like a thing that they said pixies would do. And then you would have to like take the time to like untangle the mane because you couldn't control your horse correctly with the tangled up hair. Um, they called them like pixie braids. And uh, yeah, you know, just you got to brush your horses, people. Otherwise, pixies are going to braid their hair. I um I love the idea of pixies jumping in and braiding the horse's hair though. That's I I do like that. That's yeah. so cute. <laughs> it's very it's very cute. I mean, they're not scary, but they're tricky. And you know, uh, a lot of it does seem to be targeted against travelers specifically. 
Um, and they they do kind of like, you know, like I said, it's like it's never anything lethal, but they do target travelers and it's almost like they're protecting the air, the thing, the places where they live, which is like ruins a lot of the time and like rocks. But I would say, you know, to the Sagittarius placements out there, maybe don't piss off the pixies. Um, yeah, I also have this like working theory with some of the creatures that we've been talking about, because like you see time and time again, this idea of like travelers coming up. Right. And I feel like that's really just these creatures like getting in those liminal spaces. You know? Oh, yeah. Well, and it's it's, you know, it's like around ruins, like really like how. Yeah, how, it's like how, travelers going through ruins, how liminal. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, but so they, they do like to lead travelers astray. Uh, but but actually, you know, good guy pixies, right? They don't fuck with kids. If they encounter unsupervised children, they would like play games with them um, or like, you know, have shenanigans, but harmless fun. Um so that's kind of nice. And that's a lot of the, the basis of the folk stories as well. It's like kids getting sort of uh, kidnapped by the pixies for the day and just like having fun and playing games. Um, but I would say, it, I would argue that it's very obvious that pixies were some kind of evolution from much older like Celtic influences and stories of the Fae. Like there is some scholarly debate on whether it was the Fae from the Celtic, like Irish Isle of Wales, Scotland, or Isle of Man, Wales, and Scotland, uh, or sort of that, like even more, like, like more recent to them, like the Viking influence of elves. I mean, England is actually just a clusterfuck of cultures uh, that that calls itself one thing but actually isn't. Uh, but anywho, I would, I, I would, it's, it would seem to me that they're like sort of an offshoot of the Fae. They almost seem like leprechaun you know where it's like leprechauns would like do the do the whole like leading travelers astray and sort of guarding special areas and like guarding treasure and shit like pixies right uh because they don't they don't do any of the like really really cool shit that the fae do they're like lower level spirits so it's like i feel like there's a hierarchy where it's like the the actual fae are like the top like the cool like the high elves in Lord of the Rings, you know? <laughs> yeah, they're like kind of in charge. But I, I do like that idea that there's like a ranking system and Pixies just happen to be a little lower. But the idea of like getting kidnapped as a kid and just getting to play with Pixies all day is like so much nicer than getting lured into like the other world of the Fae. And then they're like, oh, you want to eat this thing? You're ours forever like right yeah 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 yeah. no it's like it's not it's like oh they get to they go have fun games and then get to go back home to their family and like nothing bad happens yeah uh, that's so sweet I, I but i mean you know it's like kind of that that lower status though i feel like of like gnomes too like gnomes and dwarves and pixies and leprechauns are kind of like just like more more local way more common a little less magical uh, and kind of more like tied to the land versus like interdimensional, you know, it's like the pixies are there, so to speak. Uh, but so there are legends where they do kind of take on elf behavior. It's it's said in the, the local mythology that pixies will help widows specifically do their housework. Well, that's nice. 
I, yeah, I'm like, oh, that's kind of neat, you know. It's like it's like elves and making shoes, right? You know, it's like uh, just kind of helping them clean house and shit, uh, which is which is nice. Um, but but those are kind of outliers. Like you only hear about that kind of like secondhand. There's never like the story of a widow where it's like you're kind of like hearing firsthand of like, oh, and they come and do the floors and the laundry and uh. So it's always just like the friend of a friend. It's, it's like, like a fr- I had a friend that was a widow that totally had pixies come help her clean. And it's like, yeah, like, well, well like what though? I mean, they're pixies. How much could they do? Yeah, I mean, it's like they're small. Like they're not going to be beating the rug. <laughs> How many pixies co- are, are coming too? I mean, if it's like hundreds of pixies, maybe they could beat the rug. We need but to it, find out how many it, pixies does it take to change a light bulb? That that's true. Okay. Well, I mean, if anyone knows where we can get some pixies for some scientific research, uh, you can write in at wantsandfrontspod at gmail.com. Um, so anywho, but so basically, generally speaking, I would say like 90% of the stories I read from the South of England involving pixies are like tiny little pucky guys who do pranks and they're they're not between the worlds they're not ethereal like the fairies they're they're they wear like rags too and like loincloths and like leaves and flowers and shit um so they they kind of you know like they're like dobby the house elf like they'll take clothes as a gift and be like super stoked about it but they just like they just they just don't have the time to to make nice clothes apparently I mean, if I was that small, if I was small enough to like wear flowers as a garment, why bother with clothes? That's, I mean, that is a good point. But so, yeah, you know, they would take clothes as a gift and be super stoked about it. But like, they don't have time for that. Um, But they are also seemingly having less magical power and like can only do minor nature-based magic. Uh, in the original Devonshire and Cornwall pixie stories, the pixies are said to live uh, in ruins, sacred rocks, trees, specific kinds of plants. You know, it's almost like uh, like clovers and but, you know, it's they, they pixies, pixie bushes, um, which is nice. You know, all the pixies living in a bush. Um, That's like a bush is a pixie condominium. But yeah, you know, it really is. And it's like they kind of have that like elf wood nymph kind of vibe of like being nature sprites that are tied to specific features in the landscape. And so one thing I did find especially endearing about pixie lore is that one of the most common story is pixie parties. And so apparently anytime you get a bunch of pixies together, it inevitably becomes a dance party. And I'm like, that I that is an invite that I want. And so the stories kind of go that you would like happen upon like these big dance circles in in a clearing or in the middle of the forest of these like blue glowing pixies and shit. And uh it's 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 kind of hard not to think, well, maybe they they were tripping on mushrooms, but uh, I mean that just sounds like the OG raves. That's where right. raves were invented. So they're like, you know, they're glowing, they're dancing in circles, they're having a good time, they're like partying, they're drinking, they're drunk pixies, okay? Like are are the pix are pixies the woo girls? 
the pixies are the woo girls of like the fairy pantheon absolutely but yeah so they have these like huge dance parties and then it's like but it's like you see the dance party like you're just a guy lost in the woods you see a pixie dance party and there's no like m night Shyamalan twist and you don't disappear for 500 years it's just chill party vibes and um you know supposedly so in Breton, the, the Breton part of France, they have the folk holiday of Festnaz, which I'm probably not pronouncing correctly. Fucking sue me, okay? Uh, so it's like a pixie-based holiday, though, where they sort of recreate the pixie dances. Um, and that just sounds really fun. And so all of these little villages have their own like complicated local version of a circle dance. And um, you can also, okay, you can also supposedly do the supposedly based on pixie dances, best Nas dances to flatten the land for a house foundation. So I guess, thank you for the houses, pixies. Uh, very cool. Uh, but also I was saying when I read that, I was like, it makes a certain kind of logical sense that pixies would help people learn how to build houses since they live in ruins. And like in the long term, that is just good investing. I mean, think about all of the ruined French farmhouses there are in that part of the world that are still standing. Yeah. Uh, it's like, they're less about building houses and more about building future ruins. Future ruins which is the name of my uh progressive rock band oh god is your like first single gonna be 12 minutes long oh at least 12 minutes long uh because i have to get a lot of like five minute guitar licks in there you're right you're right but anywho so yeah future ruins uh pixies came up with that so smart investing and just to kind of round out our segment on Pixies, uh, I do have to talk about another holiday inspired by Pixies and the supposedly true events. Uh, so this one is specifically from the town of Ottery St. Mary in the southern UK, so very close to Devonshire and Cornwall, where the Pixie legends are from. Uh, it's called Pixie Day very original name. Uh, and the story goes that this holiday commemorates the real events and is acted out by school children every year um, of when in the Middle Ages, long before the invention of alarm clocks, uh, the Pixies decided to play a prank on the whole town by kidnapping the bell keepers at the church clock tower, which sowed chaos in the discord, uh, you know, because... People have to wake up to go farm and do all, all of their medieval village shit. So uh, the local vicar had to drive them out with the power of Jesus. Oh, thank God. <laughs> Literally. So through the power of Christ, um, which is life everlasting. Um, <laughs> all I can think of is um, the power of Christ compels you. Yes, that's that's very much the vibe. And uh, but they only agreed to cease and desist and let the bellkeepers go if they got one day to spread the discord and uh, the mayhem. And so every year on Pixie Day, which is the day that they they can come back and uh, 
you know, mayhem and madness and all that, uh, the, the local school children reenact kidnapping the bellkeepers uh, from the clock tower, and they put them in like a fake jail in the center of town. And then whoever the local vicar is at that time uh, has to come set them free. Uh, oh my God, that's so fucking cute. That brings us to uh, my opinion piece entitled Tinkerbell is a pixie. So we all know probably the most famous fairy ever, right? Because of the fucking Disney Corporation. is Everyone's cool aunt has a tattoo of her. That's true. That is true. But now that we know a little bit about what pixies are about, I wanted to take a look at fiction's most famous, arguably, fairy, maybe apart from Oberon and Titania themselves, Tinkerbell. Uh, I, I would say Tinkerbell reads more as a pixie. Uh, she's tiny, check. Uh, tattered clothes, specifically uh, a costume choice that they make for Tinkerbell time and time again, check. Uh, mischievous as fuck, check. I, I would think that leading lost children to a place called Neverland uh, counts as misleading travelers and getting sounds, them lost. Yeah, sounds pixie-led to me. Sounds very pixie-led to me as well. So, like, huge check there. So I would say, like, come at me, J.M. Barry's ghost and the Disney Corporation. Tinkerbell is clearly a pixie and not a fairy. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Uh, Wait, disclaimer, though. Disney Corporation, please actually don't come for us. No, you come for me personally. <laughs> no, don't do that either. <laughs> Nick, they're scary. I live in L.A. We don't joke about the Disney Corporation. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, I, I think so. I did say it was my personal opinion, so. That's fair. And everyone knows we're not doctors. We are not doctors, which means I cannot determine if, if Tinkerbell is a pixie or a fairy with medical accuracy but that is my opinion not legally but it's a good opinion i agree (laughs) with your opinion um so that brings us to oberon because i'm gonna be talking for a whole hour back to back today um so so buckle in we're i'm still here and uh to everyone that's not watching the video if you're watching the video you can see that it's still just me talking uh, so this one is for all the Shakespearean witches out there, which actually I feel like a lot of you guys do get the the Shakespearean witch vibe, uh, the Shakespearean witch vibe check from me. Uh, so today I'm talking about Oberon, the king of the fairies, which is actually this one really caught my interest because like just how the story became larger than life over time and really kind of straddles that line between like purely fiction and sort of mythology that I think is actually hinted at a lot in the play of Midsummer Night's Dream itself. Uh, and I, I'm seeing, I was going to say, I think it feels almost like um, it's kind of like a Tulpa situation where when a story exists for so long and has so much belief in it, it becomes real. Yeah. It's, it's, it's deification of a different kind. So I I guess I kind of am acknowledging that it is a bit unusual to sort of be doing the deity profile for the week on largely a character of fiction, but I am asking you guys to hear me out on this one. So firstly, the Shakespeare version of Oberon is almost as ancient to us 
as the Athens that he is depicting in the play was to him. That is wild. Like that perspective is wild. So like similarly though, in the play, which is set in ancient Athens or what Shakespeare feels was ancient Athens, they are putting on a play that is set in Mesopotamia and is sort of just as ancient as to them as Athens was to Shakespeare, as Shakespeare is to us. And um, so, yeah, I, you know, it's like the story of Pyramus and Thisbe was such a common thing in Greece. It actually was because it was like one of the oldest forbidden love stories. And it's like everything like all of your stories of forbidden love are based on that story, which is an actual story from Mesopotamia. And um, so, but the way the figure of Oberon grows and changes to reflect sort of the changes in society and like the culture, you know, it's like once it crosses cultures, it like changes a little bit each time. It's very similar to the way, like if you follow the Greek deities to Rome, etc etc how you know it's like you can see that they're similar you can see that they're different but at the end of the day we're all talking about the same thing but the good news though is that the fictional character Oberon does begin with a real folk legend from sort of like the backwoods of Germany that did find its way into the foremost German epic the Nibelungenlied or the Song of the Nibelungs, which is sometimes called the German Iliad. Uh, So basically, this is an epic poem written in the 13th century about actual historical events from like the 5th or 6th century and features the OG story of Oberon or like the first fictionalized version of Oberon, uh, but with his traditional German name, which is um, Alberich, uh, which translates to king of the elves uh not king of the fairies so we can see where a bit of his non-fairyishness comes from by the time it reaches shakespeare uh just because his is the original character was uh the king of the elves uh and like specifically he was like the king of like forest elves so kind of not a fairy at all but i just the- i also have to hop in and say that I love how German this is getting immediately after the release of the German Week episode of Great British Baking Show in the current series. So, woo, we're, timing. Yeah, we're we're doing we're we're going to German. Uh, we're going to a very German place. Uh, so the in the original German version, we have an sort of an interesting like a baby faced Oberon uh, who was cursed by a sometimes it's a witch. Sometimes it's an offended fairy. So fairies are part of the story, but Oberon is not a fairy, just to be clear. At Oberon's birth, uh, curses him to be always small of stature, like even smaller than wood elves who are not tall already. Um, But then she feels bad and all the other fairies and elves that are like there, including I'm sure Oberon's parents that are like, that's not cool, man. He's going to be the king of the elves one day. And, and you're making him tiny. You're making Rude. him tiny. Fuck. And so irreversible. The curse was irreversible, but she blessed him with fair youthful looks for all of eternity. 
Um, so he's tiny, but, but he's also, hot. <laughs> but he's hot. So, you know, kind of an interesting duality there. Uh, but he is the king of all the elves and the forest spirits. And he only becomes the hero Siegfried's companion after being tricked into it by the clever use of an invisibility cloak. Uh, and eventually they do acquire the famed treasure of Nibelung. Uh, and so in another epic poem that is considered like part of this same sequence, uh, Oberon, still known as Alberich, uh, sires a son with the queen of Lombardy. Very scandalous um, because she was married to the king of Lombardy. So, oops. So, obviously, no one but her and Oberon know about their love child. Uh, but the, this, uh, this love child, Ortnit, the poem is called Ortnit, by the way, which is a beautiful name, I assume, in German. It sounds like something you would use to like remove lice from an elementary school child's head. That's that's the healing power of Ortnit. Um, You're right. You're right. So uh, but so Ortnit uh, is wooing the daughter of what they call a heathen king. Um, And after finding out from his mom, who is a cheater, okay, like, I mean, he's tiny, but he's really hot. Okay, he's seducing queens. I mean, look, he's really hot. But she is still a cheater. She cheated on her husband. So, but, but Ortnit is like, oh shit, my dad is the king of elves. That's dope. Let me get some help with this daughter of this heathen king. So Alberich impersonates, okay, impersonates the prophet Muhammad. This is part of the story. This is a very old German story. What? (laughs) Um, impersonates the prophet Muhammad and basically visits the heathen king as the ghost of the prophet Muhammad uh, to convince him to allow the marriage. So, wow. So there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, But first and foremost, I feel like that is, that has very much like tricky pixie energy. Um, And it's like, honestly, he didn't have to do a lot to make the marriage happen. You know, he didn't have to alter the timeline or kidnap the daughter. You know, he just did a little bit of transformation magic, uh, albeit a very offensive act of transformation magic. Um, Yeah, it's like super offensive. But as far as like fucking with the timeline, very modest compared to a lot of stories. Right. So uh, so I'm feeling some some pixie energy here. And so also. And this is where, okay, so that's like the main part of the story. Like he finds out Oberon is his dad. They go, they get the girl, they impersonate the prophet Muhammad um, and they go home. And uh, that's like the meat of the story. But um, I, I am going to kind of go off on a little tangent I li- because I'm like, I thought it was just too funny not to share. Uh, so I didn't mention that in this version of the legend, you can only see Alba Reich. Uh, while wearing a magic ring. Okay, Uh, so obviously when they meet, he gives the ring to his son so his son can see him. And I I think he can like reveal himself as the ghost of the Prophet Muhammad. Um, 
but otherwise you can't see him. He is invisible. So at the end of the story, like after the main events of the poem, uh, Ortnit is planning on fighting a horde of angry dragons. And Alberich is like, that is a terrible idea. You're definitely going to die. So before you do, give me back the ring. And that is the end of German Oberon for a minute. Wow. I uh, love that. So he just nopes out of there like, like, like deuces. Now we're switching to French Oberon. So we did end up with that version of Oberon in what is essentially the German language's version of Beowulf. And so naturally it becomes a common folklore theme, uh, sort of character archetype. And it is not at all surprising when he springs up right across the border in Bordeaux. Uh, this time spelled Oberon, like Aubergine, but it does sound the same. Um, so we're almost oh, to Shakespeare. How French. <laughs> yeah, so we're almost to Shakespeare's Oberon, but it is, it's like Aubergine. Uh, and he's helping this new hero from Bordeaux in a French epic poem this time, uh, also named after the main character, Juan de Bordeaux. Um, y'all really got me doing all the languages this week. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, <laughs> I know it's like a, it's like totally Rosetta Stone in here, but I'm proud of you. You're doing a great job. Thank you. So in this story, Juan uh, accidentally kills the Emperor Charlemagne's ton, uh, son, Timothée Charlemagne. No, I'm kidding. Uh, it's uh, the 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 son's name is. Shamu Charlemagne and so Wait, like close to Shamu yeah Shamu Shamu uh I also they they do speculate that uh this story kind of happened in that the son of the Duke of Bordeaux at some point in like again like the fourth or fifth century so a long ass time ago uh, did accidentally kill some French king, like Charles of something, like nephew, who was his heir. I don't know. It was very, uh, it was very much like a rabbit hole that I did not particularly want to go down. But I, ha I have to say, sometimes like French history is delightfully messy. Like it that. is. I, there's a, there's a lot of. Um, a lot of accidental deaths during duels. They love to have duels um, with each other for, for honor, which is cool. Um, but yeah, so anywho, uh, in the story, it's Charlemagne's nephew, uh, or Charlemagne's son, sorry. And so he's sentenced to death. Uh, so we're talking about Juan, Juan. So he's like, well, if my options are like death or or a seemingly impossible task. Obviously, you're going to go for not certain death. Like, maybe you could pull it off, or at least you get some time to try. It's, uh, it's which, cake or death. Yeah, obviously cake, right? Um, he sets off towards the Emir of Babylon, uh, who is apparently, in this story, Charlemagne, the emperor of France and the Holy Roman Emperor's enemy. Um, maybe it was because he was the most powerful Muslim in the world at the time, you know, for some reason, the, even though they are so far away from each other and their land didn't really touch, that's like his main enemy, right? 
So he has to go all the way to Babylon, which is in Iraq. The country of Iraq now is where Babylon was. So you got to think that's a long way from France, where Charlemagne lived. Mike, man, this like anti-Muslim sentiment has been around a minute, hasn't it? Right. Uh, also, it, it what is it with Oberon and getting involved in um, Middle Eastern shit? Uh, yeah, it's like, dude, get out of the Middle East. <laughs> okay, so Oberon uh, is the George Bush of uh, fictional deities. Um, is he is he the George Bush, though, or is he a Cheney? Because I feel like Oberon would not be in the corner reading a book upside down when 9-11 happened. Okay, you know what? You're right. Oberon is the Dick <laughs> Cheney, uh, the CEO of Halliburton. Uh, Anywho, no, so... Yeah, sorry, this was like politics corner with Nick and Shannon. <laughs> Anywho, so Oberon just cannot get enough of going to the Middle East and uh, offending and killing Muslim people, apparently. Uh, so so, he, so Huan knows he's going through Oberon's woods. They've warned him. They're like, he's going to call out for you. Don't answer. Just keep going. It's fine. And he's like a chivalry guy, Juan. He's the son of the Duke of Bordeaux. Okay, that's fancy. That's like he went to important schools to teach him how to be fancy, fancy. Yeah, like he's a fancy guy. He's a chivalry guy. Uh, He probably knows about chivalry, like IRL. Um, He's like, he's met chivalry. He's met chivalry herself. Um... So, so he's going through Oberon's woods. They're like, Oberon's going to be there. Just don't talk to him. Just keep going. And he's like, but that's rude. Oberon is the king of the elves. And like, I'm going to politely make his acquaintance if he calls out for me because I'm a polite guy. And uh, that wins his favor with Oberon, who's like, oh, you're so polite. And how nice of you. Of course, I will help you on your quest uh let's go i'm the king of the elves uh, what a low bar though to win his favor to not yeah. be a dickhead to not be a dickhead um so they go all the way to babylon and then it's like it's literally they do a full-blown john wick right because in order they okay so they have to come back with a handful of the emir which is where the word Emirate comes from. So think United Arab Emirates. It means kingdom. If you're the emir, you are the king. Just a little linguistic lesson for everyone who doesn't know what I'm what I'm talking about. So they have to have a handful of basically the king of Babylon's teeth and a handful of his hair. That's what they wanted. So in order to get to the king, you have to like start at the bottom. And like when the you know, when the guys at the gates won't let you in, you kill them and then you make your way to the palace and then the palace guys won't let you in. So then you have to kill them and then you get to where the king lives and then the king's like personal guards are obviously not going to let you get to the king. So then you have to kill all of them. Uh, and uh, then you get, finally get to the king and then they, in order to get a handful of his teeth and, and his hair, you have to kill him. I mean, wow. So it really takes a turn for like the the action movie of it all. Um, yeah, this is way more Cheney than Bush for sure. <laughs> um, so after completely, I guess, devastating the city of Babylon and stealing the king's teeth and hair, 
They go back, they get the pardon, and Oberon helps save the day. And that, for sure, because there was only one version that existed at the time that was translated to English, which was that version of the story, uh, more or less, um, with some embellishments by me, the version that William Shakespeare would have heard. And so that is the part that we probably actually do know. So like everyone out there, you probably are at least have a passing familiarity with the Midsummer Night's Dream uh, and all of the, the retellings and derivative stuff from it that we know about now. So in that, we have Oberon, the very powerful fairy king, like doing tricks on the poor Athenian youths lost in the woods, right? Um, and he's kind of, I think, acting as a placeholder for like, pixies because the people from england knew about fairies and pixies so you look at the couple oberon and titania titania is very much like a fairy and oberon and puck are very much like the pixies um so it's like they they have that duality and also kind of i think oberon in midsummer night's dream has like jupiter and zeus vibes you know where it's like He's this very aloof patriarch and he just likes goofing around and like using his power for his own entertainment. Um, So he's like a good placeholder for like those kinds of much older gods um, that was sort of like relatable to the audience, you know, like some kind of middle ground between then and now that still feels ancient, but is newer and more relatable. It's almost like Oberon, you know, I mean, is kind of that for us. Is kind of where we've, we've circled around to. And, uh, but yeah, so of course, Shakespeare's version is the immortalized version, for better or for worse. And it also sets off a wild string of spinoffs. There's so many paintings of Oberon and Titania. People really thought it was romantic, like this idea of the fairy king and queen and like their meritable problems you know like causing storms and having all of these fairies and pixies as attendants uh so they love to paint it you know they called like the 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 romance the romance era you know sort of like around the regency era like bridgerton shit like people loved a good opera about oberon and titania and you would have uh, a midsummer night's dream themed masquerade uh, and so there's all there's all people would write little playlets to like perform at their masquerade. And so Oberon is like a very popular folk character well after the Shakespeare version. Um, also, I mean, like all of the pop culture references, like I feel like I've read, I for sure read a sci-fi that I cannot think of the name of where there's like a spaceship called Oberon. You know, it was the fourth moon of Uranus is called Oberon. So there's a moon called Oberon. It's like, it's pop popular. But, you know, before we kind of move on to chamomile, uh, I did want to point out that German-style Oberon, uh, as opposed to French-style Oberon, was briefly resurrected in the late 1800s by a popular series of operas by Robert Wagner based on the Nibelung stories called uh, The Ring of Nibelung, Uh, But historically speaking, it is hard to outshine William Shakespeare on the cultural impact front. So sorry, Robert Wagner, like 
the Shakespeare version, aka the French version of Oberon, basically uh, is like the that's the one that's the one that won. So, yeah, I mean, it's kind of hard to beat Shakespeare. Um, that was awesome. I'm I feel so much more confident in being able to distinguish pixies and fairies, which I think is very important for magical people. There And there we go, y'all. Yeah, we're just bringing you all of the information that you truly need. So I'm really excited to talk about chamomile today. And the best part about being on screen, sorry for people listening. If you want to see the video of us, join our Patreon, patreon.com slash wantsandfronspod. Um, but it's bring your chamomile to work day. So. Oh, yeah. so, so there is a giant jar of chamomile on the screen for everyone that can't see. It's really big. It's like the size of my face. I it's... drink a lot of chamomile. <laughs> I was going to say, I feel like that is something that me and Shannon both have in common. That's like a constant at my house is some kind of chamomile. Right now, it is just plain chamomile. And I, yeah. I, I couldn't be happier. I love chamomile. So this like little flower and you can see in here because it's the whole flowers. These are these are really small flowers. Um, but the little flower here has like so many properties, like both magical and medicinal. And again, it's one I use like every single day. The reason we had to take a break earlier is because I had drank a lot of chamomile and calendula tea right before we started recording. Um, but chamomile is amazing. I know I kind of tend to bounce between saying chamomile and chamomile. So I'm not trying to be weird about it. I just noticed that about myself. So forgive me. Um, but in honor of all of the Oberon talk, I did want to start with a quote from old Bill the Bard himself about chamomile. So, though the chamomile, the more it is trodden on, the faster it grows, so youth, the more it is wasted, the sooner it wears. William Shakespeare in Henry the Fourth. So, hmm. uh-huh. Chamomile is kind of a big deal. Uh, there are two main cultivars that people are familiar with. There's um, Roman and German. I'm going to be talking about German chamomile today. That's the one I think that is most commonly used. Um, Roman chamomile, fun facts, is not actually like primarily from Rome. It's called Roman chamomile because an English botanist was on a trip to Rome and found it growing there. So that's how we got uh, Roman chamomile. But I'm talking German chamomile today, uh, Matricaria chamomilla. Um, but again, there are different like varieties. These are the two main ones, but they're really similar and they can be used pretty interchangeably. But again, I think German chamomile is the one that's the most widely and readily available, at least here in the US. It's also the one that I always find seeds for. So that's why we're going with that today. So. This little flower is uh, in the Asteraceae or the daisy family. So again, if you have allergies to things in the Asteraceae family, be careful with chamomile. Um, it also has this super intense, long history of use in like cultures around the world. So the Egyptians believe that chamomile was a gift from the sun god Ra, and it was also used in the embalming process kind of a big deal. They would often like stuff the different like body cavities after they had been emptied with things like 
chamomile would be included in there and like anise and all sorts of other very fragrant things. Um, so obviously a big deal. I was cause, also cause you, cause uh, dead bodies do not smell good in, no. in case anyone was not cognizant of that fact. Yeah, I know we're breaking news here, but dead bodies stink. Um, the Egyptian like nobility, like the Egyptian noble women would also use like ground chamomile flowers for makeup. And I was honestly just like super stoked when I found an ancient like beauty, like product essentially that wasn't fucking heavy metal. Oh my God. It's like mercury. (laughs) Like just putting belladonna eye drops just to make your pupils wider. I was just like, oh my God, it's something that's not going to be part of what's killing them. (laughs) Um, So the Loch Nunga, which is an ancient Anglo-Saxon herb guide, also lists chamomile as one of the nine sacred herbs. And ancient Greek physicians like Dioscorides um, wrote about chamomile and how it was prescribed like almost like a cure-all. It was like, Whatever ails you, chamomile can probably fix it. Um, And also, I love that like throughout Europe and North America, chamomile plants were used as like low growing lawn plants before turf took over and- Bring it back. Right? Right? I think that that's like the go-to. So when Nick and I end up on our compound with multiple Victorian cottages, we're going to take out all the turf and just grow chamomile, which I think will be great. And clovers. And clovers, yeah. We'll get, we'll have all of the tea we could ever need. Our skin is going to be great between like red. If we get red clover and chamomile, we're going to have glowing skin. Um, Anyway, so I I do really say fuck turf and grass is really bad for the environment if you're working on a grass lawn. So chamomile is a good alternative. You guys, uh, especially those of you who have joined our Patreon. But uh, you guys, we know where you live. And uh, if you're growing grass, your ass is grass. (laughs) Your ass is grass. Um, And chamomile, fortunately, has naturalized kind of all over the place. And I know there are people that apparently have it growing like weeds on their property. I'm jealous of that. I live in the middle of Los Angeles. That's not a thing here. So if you're one of those people that has just a bunch of chamomile or stinging metal, hit me up. I want some. I'll pay postage. Let me know. Um, This is a plant, though, that really needs full sun to thrive. There's just like no getting around it. Chamomile, like calendula, like you have to have sun. A lot of things that flowers are the medicine for, like you can't really get away with it. And like I've tried, my front porch has like this really beautiful big tree that shades it for a lot of the day. So I have a very limited amount of like direct sun space. And I've tried growing chamomile in the like shaded part and it just dies. And that's, I, I know better, but I continue to try growing things there that shouldn't go. Um, so, you know, we all do it. Um, you also need to make sure that your uh, soil is very well draining. Chamomile does not like wet feet. Like if your soil is not rapidly draining and the chamomile stays soggy for really any length of time, it will rot out. Like chamomile rots so easily. The leaves are very feathery and fine. And usually when you see that, plants like that tend to be a little bit more sensitive to moisture levels for sure. Throughout the year, you just want to like deadhead the flowers regularly. So it keeps like producing, but you can also let some go to seed and they'll self-sow for the coming year. So it's, it's supposed to be pretty easy to cultivate once you have like the right conditions. It's been really hard for me because most of my stuff that's in the area that does get that direct sun are like my vegetables. 
<laughs> so I am hopefully going to try again for chamomile in the spring. I just like built myself a little herb box that's kind of over off to the side. So we'll see how that goes. But um, lots of people have it growing all over the place. So it's it's not super hard. You just do have to have the right conditions. Right plant, right place is always going to make your life easier. Or you can be like me and just keep trying over and over again, knowing that it's not going to work and hoping that somehow this time will be totally different. It's never different. Um, anyway, the other thing about chamomile that's really cool, though, and part of why I'm excited to try planting it in my little herb box um, is chamomile is also said to be like the plant's physician because it's supposed to have like healing effects on companion plants that are planted near it. So they can like repel a lot of like insect pests and help prevent bacterial and fungal infections in neighboring plants. So it's like Mr. Roger approves this neighborhood. It's all very healthy. Thanks to chamomile. So let's talk about this like super long list of health benefits, right? Um, I'm not a doctor. This does not constitute medical advice. Please consult your physician before using anything. You know the drill. We're not doctors. Um, so getting the whole flower again is like going to be so much more potent than the tea bags that you can like find at the grocery store. And so I really, really, really do recommend you guys try to find the whole flower if at all possible. This is also one though, that's not prohibitively expensive. Like if you're going out and trying to buy like rose hips, you know, those can get pricey pretty fast if you're buying them like, you know, from a bulk herb place, but like Chamomile, like a jar like this, this is one of the big ball jars. I forget how many ounces it technically holds. Um, I think I pay like eight bucks to totally fill this up with chamomile. So it's not super crazy expensive compared to other stuff. And it really is just worth it because tea bag chamomile tends to be really weak. I mean, it's delicious for a good cup at night. You're just not going to be able to like really, really capitalize on all of the awesome health properties as much if you're not getting whole flower. Um, so this is a plant that has natural sedative properties. It's also anti-spasmodic, anti-inflammatory, antiseptic, anti-allergen, antibacterial, and antifungal. So kind of a laundry list. It does a bit of everything. Chamomile though is like super good for digestive issues, which is why I use it so often in like my bedtime tea blend blends, um, that like Virgo tummy connection is rough, especially during stressful seasons, like fall at a museum right before the Obama portraits arrive. And when the gala's in two weeks and suddenly we're reopened and all of the donors want a million things from you, you know, just like that. That um, sounds, that sounds so specific. And I can't imagine, uh, who you would be talking about. I know, uh, going to keep that secret. Uh, chamomile is also good for helping with like menstrual pain and it's like a gentle amenagogue. So if you're like periods a little late or you need to get a move on things, a chamomile tea could like gently usher in shark week for you and help with any cramping that you deal with. Historically, they would also give it to like birthing mothers for the same use, you know, just to sort of like help relieve that pain. Um, I have a feeling it's probably not super effective on childbirth. <laughs> yeah. Just, uh, can you imagine though, if you were like having a, having a baby and they fucking bring you, they're like, okay, we, we got you something for the pain. Here is a cup of very strong chamomile tea. Yeah. I'd probably be pretty cranky. Um, <laughs> 
So topically, chamomile is like super good too, though. I think a lot of people are familiar with using it as like a tea or drinking it, which I do love. Um, but it is like a baller topically too. So it's good for things like insect bites, eczema, surface burns and wounds. Like, you know, please don't use it for your arrow wounds. Get to an emergency room. We've discussed this. Don't put herbs and arrow wounds, guys go to the doctor. Um, I also did an infuse like blend of jojoba and rosehip oil with calendula and chamomile um, for Eric, because they have skin that's like really prone to redness and inflammation. And it has made like a difference, like a noticeable difference in their skin. And seriously, like they went back to Texas for a few days and noticed that their skin was like getting cranky and like trying to break out and definitely getting more red again. And I'm taking credit for part of that because they didn't pack their skin oil. And then their skin started acting up. So on that note, I am currently developing a line of beauty products with herbs. So if you have any requests, let me know. Um, but chamomile has been used in a lot of like beauty products throughout history too, though, especially for blondes. Uh, chamomile infusions are said to help lighten your hair. So if you're looking up like herbal hair rinses, you'll see chamomile recommended for blondes a lot. And apparently Norse peoples used it for like blonde washes. That, I, that's, I, I, I can just imagine that that smells lovely too. Yeah, I love the way chamomile smells. It's delicious. Um, again, chamomile is also really, really good for acne, which I want to like just reinforce because this is why I also use it in like my skin oil because I'm acne prone and like chamomile is so good for that. So like, Ayo, acne is a real pain in the ass. So anything that can help with that, I'm always just like going to remind you a million times because it's hard out here for those of us that have acne prone skin. Um, since it soothes the nerves and helps improve digestion, chamomile is also said to be like a really good helper for like colicky babies and like teething pain. Again, like talk to your doctor before you use anything, especially for babies. Uh, but yeah, that seems like a good call. Yeah. But chamomile in general is considered a really gentle herb and safe for most people. So, you know, be careful, but like it, it's one that I think is, is, really useful for kids as long as your pediatrician doesn't tell you no. Um, so on to the magic. Ooh. Chamomile is a masculine plant associated with the sun and the water element, which I really love that duality because it is like, it's so soothing. Um, but in the herbal witchery podcast, when I was listening to it today, uh, the hostess describes it as having like a gentler sun energy than things like calendula and dandelion. And like, I definitely agree, which is why I think the sun and the water combination like makes sense to me because the sun energy of chamomile is like really gentle, not like blast you in the face. It's like a beautiful sunset at the beach. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like a very sweet, gentle sun, not like fiery. Um, and it does have like this really beautiful transformational energy about it too. So, uh, chamomile has historically been used for like, uh, protection against curses, but more importantly, it can help transform like that bad energy into positive energy. Um, so I could also imagine like using chamomile incense or tea as like a way to sort of like heal and recenter yourself, like in your body after intense shadow work, or even just like one of those therapy sessions. That's really hard. Chamomile, I think would be really good for that. Um, 
You'll also see chamomile used a lot for things like money magic and attraction spells. So if you know, like you have a long-term abundance altar or like I have a crystal bowl that's like an attraction bowl and it's got like pyrite and things in it. Um, I think chamomile would be really good here. In particular, I was thinking like, I love the idea of adding fresh chamomile to those places when you're doing like the attraction work and replacing it like as it needs to be replaced as the flowers sort of like die and wilt. And that could be a good way to also be re-upping that abundance energy every time you have to go and replace the flowers. Um, of course, you can also use ground chamomile as um, a candle dressing. If you're doing like money magic or attraction spells, um, powdery, like chamomile can be really powdery it gets really fine. So of course, be careful. You don't want to light yourself on fire. Um, but I do think it could be a good ca uh, candle dressing or the oils. If you have the essential oils, you can use them too. Uh, chamomile is also good for self-love and beauty spells. So I think I, I love the idea of adding it to a bath with like rose petals and like your favorite, like bath salts, maybe something that smells like lavender. I feel like that would be a really like lovely way to do some like self-love magic get to feeling sexy pulling that venusian energy but like the sun energy of the chamomile being so gentle i think is so good for like when you want to feel a little sexy you know because it's not like it's not like wow wow gonna go get fucked sexy it's like oh my god yeah it's like feeling yourself sexy, which I really like. Um, it's It smells so good. So I, I think it'd be really good in a bath too. Um, yeah. And so that's that. I mean, chamomile has like just this very diverse properties, like both med medically and magically. And I think if you are a green witch or you're interested in getting more into herbs, like I think it's better to know like five or six herbs really well, instead of trying to know like an herb for every single thing. And if you were going to have like a short list of like plants or herbs that you regularly worked with, I think chamomile very much deserves a place in that because it is just so useful for so many different things. And it's delicious, which you don't get all the time. Like I love mugwort, mugwort tea, bleh. like, <laughs> you well, know, it's, it's like we were talking about with valerian, like it smells yeah. like, a, it smells like a foot. Yeah. Chamomile smells great. It's got that kind of like fruity edge to it. You can cook with it. Um, on the herbal witchery podcast I listened to, she was posting, um, a recipe for honey chamomile pancakes. I love that. Yeah. So anyway, so that's, and, that. and, uh, and you know, it's like, I've known so many people who do not seem to feel like the, the sleepiness effects of chamomile. And I do think that's interesting because I think like there's got to be some kind of it's like it's got to be some kind of cilantro gene thing because I'm like, I do sleep so much better after drinking chamomile. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you want to know. So my my personal go to sleep blend is chamomile, skullcap and passion flower. And then I will be out like I'm in a fucking coma if I drink a strong cup of that before bed. It's so good. Um, and of course, I, I would have to say, because it, you can use it for calming magic as well, you could definitely put it in a sleep sachet. So, so. That's, a, that's a drink. Also, I was saying we should add uh, Mesopotamia, because Mesopotamia yeah. has been coming up a lot. Like, Yeah, I love it. 
So, so my sources real quick before we close out, um, gardeningknowhow.com, grow your urn, uh, grow your own herbal remedies by Maria Noel Groves, the herbal witchery podcast, which is really great. Her episodes are like 20 minutes, each focused on a plant. Like it's, it's super fun. Um, Cunningham's encyclopedia of magical herbs and the modern witchcraft guide to magical herbs by Judy Ann Nock. Love it. Love chamomile. You guys go buy some chamomile. Yeah, this I'm just episode. gonna like huff mine. Yeah, it's like chamomile poppers. Um, <laughs> totally. So, okay, you guys, I have not great news to share uh, for this week's taroscope. Uh, and it does affect me personally because I got Aries for this week's taroscope, um, which is also happens to be my sign. Yeah, that's and you. That's me. Um, and boy, Boy, do I feel called out by this by this reading. Uh, so we have the devil card in the upright position. What does that mean? You're probably asking yourself or not. Uh, so basically, this card and my personal experience is telling me that we are using very toxic coping mechanisms right now, perhaps to combat feeling trapped or helpless or chaotic. Um, which will ultimately end up coming around to bite us in the ass. Uh, so basically, the message here is that you shouldn't metaphorically sell your soul to the devil to get out of a few moments of discomfort and uh, to say, stay strong and get through this. Um, and so do that. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> but you guys should. Oh, my God. I... This feels like such an Aries message from our Aries. Yeah. So uh, do with that what you will. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Can we not? I mean, you know, it's like, I don't really have yeah. to go into it uh, for the for the listeners, but it's like, I've been going through some stuff lately and I'm like, I, you know, I don't, I don't, I do not need this bitch slap this week. Yeah. So. It's like, this is your show. How dare you, tarot deck? <laughs> oh my yeah, god. Yeah, I'm really mad at my tarot cards. But um, so there you have it, you guys. So um I, I know at least a couple of you out there are watching this on the Patreon, but again, patreon.com slash wands and fronds pod. So check that yeah, out. There's gonna uh, be content for you guys. You can yeah. see the videos, but we're also uh, one of the levels has like a monthly virtual coven gathering. And I'm like, this is going to be cool. Cocktail hour slumber party vibes, which will be fun. I'm, and I'm so excited. I'm so excited for those bonus. sodes. you know, I mean, you name it. There's a lot of shit. There's a lot of shit on the Patreon, you guys. So go check it out. Also, if you're not feeling like paying, you can always hit us up on Instagram. Uh, also at Wands and Franz pod. Uh, we're still doing the thing till the end of October, where if you leave a review on Apple Podcasts, we're going to put you all in a drawing for a tarot reading. So Ooh, I feel like that's a pretty, I mean, Samhain is the witch's new year. So if you were going to get like a tarot reading done with someone that you respect and appreciate their opinion, which I would hope you do for us, uh, this is a great time of year to do that, which is new year. Yeah. So check, you know, leave a review, check it out. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, to all of the, what, I mean, the pixie bitches. Yeah. To all of our pixie bitches, we say blessed be pixie bitches. <laughs> blessed be you pixie bitches. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye now. 
the table that would get you fucked up if you smoked it. Oh my God, that table would absolutely get you fucked up if you smoked it. 